Welcome to Behind the Band, a business podcast where we're all about helping you grow your music career. Normally, we do that by talking with really awesome artists who are out there in the trenches. Today, we have something just a little bit different. Wanted to catch up with my friend Justin Abel, who's a fellow producer and mix engineer. And we just wanted to have a conversation about how do you make the most of your studio time? Talking about creativity in the studio, talking about preparing for the studio. I know this is something that's you know super important for artists because... Well, I don't think I need to explain the importance of your recordings for, you know, your success as an artist. So real excited to jump into that conversation today with him. Real quick before we do, if you are working on new music and would love to know the proven strategy for promoting your release for maximum success, how to get blogs, playlists, all of that fun stuff, would love for you to sign up for our free half hour workshop called Rock the Release. Just go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop to sign up for that. Evergreenrecords.com slash workshop. But for now, without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump into our conversation today with Justin Abel. Justin, how are you doing, man? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm hanging in there. We are recovering from a giant ice storm here in Oregon, or as someone actually said to me recently, Oregon. Which, it's been a hot minute since I've heard that. Oregon. Which, for the record, it's Oregon. (laughs) But we digress. Super glad you're uh, joining us today here on Behind the Band. What have you been up to recently? Thank you. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I mean, yesterday, I was up to literally shoveling the driveway to the studio so that I could actually get to work. So it took like two and a half hours to actually get to the studio. (laughs) But, so that was good. Other than that, I've been mixing a lot so right now I'm finishing up a record for a band called O9, which is very good. Producing songs for some pop artists and a lot of stuff that is slated that is to be announced soon. So yeah, no, th- things are great. I'm Yeah, this year has been really good so far. Very thankful. Nice, nice. Why don't you just share a little bit about what you do before we dive into a little bit of your backstory? Yeah, I am a producer and mix engineer based outside of Portland and... Yeah, so I do any anything from, you know, a band brings me an iPhone voice memo of them playing an acoustic guitar and singing some words that don't really mean anything to them and then turning that into a full-fledged production. Anywhere from that to, you know, a band going to a different studio elsewhere in the country or in the state and sending me files and I, I'll mix them. So kind of anywhere in between that, helping songwrite, I do that a lot. I play like a lot of keys or guitars on people's stuff because most people don't have a keys player or don't really know how to play guitar, like lead guitar parts. So I do a lot. I wear many hats, you know? And so, and I, and I wear different hats for every single project that I work on. You know, my job description changes basically every day. Well, that's kind of what a producer does is helps an artist go from, Hey, here are my songs to, let's turn this into an album or a single or or whatever that is. So why don't you go ahead and just kind of share your story and how you got to where you are? Totally. So I grew up in Oregon. I grew up playing guitar. I think I started playing guitar when I was seven or something like that, which I don't necessarily love to say that because I should be way better at guitar. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, I feel that. If that's true, I've been playing guitar for 20 years, which is embarrassing because I'm not that good. I'm very utilitarian. Anyways, when I was really young... When I was in elementary school, I started listening to like Blink-182 and Sum 41 and then like Green Day. Super into just, yeah, the punk scene, pop punk. And 
got into my first band in, I think, sixth grade or seventh grade or something like that. We started just playing covers around town. And then, you know, that leads to, hey, we should start playing our own music because playing all American rejects covers forever sounds stupid. <laughs> and like, you know, that, that just is not the, not exactly what I want to do. Um, and at this point, yeah, we, we were very serious in, in middle school and high school, early high school, I was legit on all of my career day stuff. I'd be like touring musician. That, that is all I want to do. I want to just be in a band and, and all of my teachers are like, that's a bad idea. You should have a backup plan. And I'm like, screw you. No, I know what I want to do. <laughs> we started writing music. We got into, we recorded an EP out of like a real studio in 2008, I think. So I was in eighth grade. That experience changed my life. It was quite a saga. Like we had a drummer lined up, the drummer bailed. So I had to play drums on it, which thankfully I was, I was like, I was starting to build up my drumming chops by that point. So it ended up being fine. But I remember watching our producer like open up Drumagog, which is like the OG drum sampling program and like way before Trigger. And he's like, okay, we need to pick the snare sound for this. And I was like, wait, what are you even talking about? You know? And I just remember being like mind blown. And I remember him tuning my vocal because I was the singer of the band. And it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is how it's done. I had no idea that it was like this involved. So that really got my, my cogs turning that it's like, man, I, I don't know. I think that that, that guy, that producer is like the coolest guy I know. And I kind of want to do that. So in high school, I got an interface, like an eight channel interface, iMac and logic and like a bunch of crappy mics and started recording myself and recording that same band. And we put out, yeah, we put out an EP that I tracked and then while doing that, I started recording my friends' bands for like next to nothing, but like buy me this plugin and I'll record your song. <laughs> you know, so early on, I recorded Bo Bascoro because we've been friends forever. He's a pop artist. Which side note, go check out his episode on Behind the Band. He's episode number one. Yeah, totally. As it should be. So I recorded Bo in in high school and we had such a good time and I was like, I need Drumagog that same plugin. And so it's like, I'll record your songs, just buy me that plugin. And so that's how I got Drumagog. In that same, same era, I started playing in a band called Rhodes, which for Portland people, Rhodes was fronted by the old drummer of A Hope For Home, which A Hope For Home was like a pretty big band in our area, like a heavy band. And so I felt like, oh my gosh, this is going to be sweet. Like the music was really interesting. The drum parts were not easy and so it felt really good to be a part of. And, and the singer of that band was recording everything himself in his house. He played every instrument and it actually didn't sound awkward. You know, it was like, oh, like you could do, you can actually do this and it, it doesn't have to sound like absolute trash. So that was really inspiring for me. I kind of, I made the mental transition that I don't want to tour because I don't want to be gone all the time. And I actually want to have a family and I want a more stable life than what a touring musician can, can have. So right after high school, I went to a recording school, which was great. Learned some technical knowledge. And right after that, moved to Nashville to intern at a studio called Omnisound Studios, which was awesome, right in Music Row. Had a blast, learned a lot. And then I had the opportunity to move back to Portland to start a studio here. And I've been here doing doing studio stuff, producing full-time ever since. So that was like seven, I think it was seven years ago at this point. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Well, I think that's real great that 
you at one point realized, you know what, the touring life isn't for me. I This is what I want out of life. And that's something I encourage people to really kind of think critically about is ask yourself, well, what do you want? I think sometimes you get kind of fixated of like, well, I want to do music or in that your mind automatically goes to, well, I got to live in a van and, you know, tour the country and play all these dive bar gigs and you work at a coffee shop and like think that this is like, you know, the script you have to follow when you thought, no, I I know I want to have roots somewhere. I want to have a family, all that. Can you talk about what that kind of point of self-discovery was that helped you kind of realize, you know, this isn't for me. Well, yes. All through high school and even middle school, I was playing in venues all around Portland. So like Satyricon, Hawthorne, Dante's, freaking Kelly's Olympian, all these little little places that are terrible that you'd never want to take your daughter, right? Like it, it just terrible places. And so we didn't make any money, the, the whole thing. Uh, but I loved playing live. You know, you get so much life from it. Like I still enjoy playing live as much as I can, which is almost never, especially through COVID, obviously. But the real turning point was was sophomore year. I started dating a girl named Hunter, Aww. who is now my wife, almost eight years later. And Well, we've been married for eight years. We've been together for like almost half of our life at this point, which is pretty cool. She grew up like coming to my shows and... Like we went to the same church. And so we were very connected, like in the same group. She was well aware of my, of my aspirations. And yeah, I don't know. We had, we had a lot of conversations very early on in our relationship. And uh, it's very clear that we were not going to be a thing if I was gone touring like 250 or 300 dates a year, which thank the Lord, I had the foresight when I was 15 years old to start grinding <laughs> away in my parents' basement on logic and <laughs> doing my best to to like figure out a way. I I was like, I had no idea how, even to this day, I mean, having a studio in a suburb of Portland on a 15 acre plot, that is like, how are you going to have enough work to actually survive? Like, I remember thinking about that all the time. Well, there's no way I'm going to be there. And uh, alas, things are pretty great. Very thankful. So that was the transition. I, I got a girlfriend who who was incredible, and young and dumb me had enough wisdom to, you know, pursue her and focus on my future self more than, uh, you know, me wanting to be a rock star. Yeah. So that was the transition. Well, I think your goals kind of change over your life, like. Even if you're like in the phase of your life where you want to be living out of a van and touring the country 250, 300 days a year, which is awesome. It's a lot of fun. Like you may fall in love and want to start a family someday. So anybody out there who's maybe struggling with that, like it's okay to, you know, shift your your goals a little bit. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, yeah, if, you, if you're completely into music, that is the, you only want to do things in the music industry or whatever. There's literally infinite jobs inside of the music mm-hmm. industry. You could manage, you could work for a label, you could work for a distribution company. You could, you could freaking work at a vinyl pressing plant. You could work at, uh, that, like the list goes on for literally, you could work at a gear manufacturer. You could work at freaking Sweetwater. You can invent your thing. The music industry is such like a big thing and you can you can do whatever you want. Totally. <laughs> Blank canvas for you. Well, and if you're like, if you're that into it, like even so, some of those that I just listed off, I was like, 
I mean, that would even be kind of fun, you know? Like, I wouldn't totally mind working at Sweetwater. It sounds kind of fun. <laughs> like, every time I talk to my Sweetwater guy, it's like, like your life is kind of sick, yeah. right? And he's like, yeah, my life is kind of sick. You know, it's great. <laughs> you get awesome. to talk to, to people about gear all day and you get discounts. What more could you want? Totally, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's a billion things you could do in the industry that doesn't involve you being gone all the time. And I think COVID is making people pivot to that, which is, you know, maybe a really good thing. Yeah, 100%. I know there are musicians providing for themselves and their families without playing a single show over the past year. They've just figured out a way to get creative. So if that's you, just freaking do it. Figure out a way to make it work for you. I know everything kind of sucks and we've all been kind of, you know, dealing with the fallout of everything. But like, there's a way to make it work. If you have a will, there's a way. So that's a great point, I think, to transition to what are some of the ways artists can still stay productive, you think, during this time, maybe when you can't get to the studio? Mm -hmm. I mean, I am a big advocate of, of write as much as you can. It is a muscle and it is something that you can fall out of practice with. And so I know a lot of artists that rely solely on creativity or the feeling of feeling creative, which in my opinion, and maybe this is just biased because of what I do for a living, but it's like, I don't have a choice to come to the studio and just not really feel that creative. And so I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to eat chips and watch YouTube all day. Like I don't have, I don't have a literal option for that. And so I have found ways to inspire myself to, okay, cool. Yeah. I, uh, listen to this little playlist. There's a few records that like, no matter what, if I listen to them, I'm going to feel inspired to, to work on music. Right. And so like what a big one for me is Sufjan Stevens, Carrie and Lowell. I think that that record is literally perfect is so good. That is the top of my list. Maybe a Beatles tune or two. I really like Sgt. Pepper's right now. I, th I think it's such an interesting record. It's freaking weird. It's really impressive though. And then Weezer Pacific Daydream. Those are, those are like my three that I go to that no matter what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get inspired listening to them. As far as for artists, like, yeah, continue writing and literally everybody can record themselves in some capacity. So every, like I would say probably, it's safe to say 95% of the population has iPhones, like legitimate like iPhones. Some people have Androids, but almost nobody. And so- <laughs> which I'm sure that there's an Android app that does a similar thing than GarageBand, I'm sure. But my dude, like the best demos I've ever gotten from a band were done all on an iPhone with an iRig plugged, I'll send it to you. It, it will blow your mind. With an with a iRig plugged into it, everything's just DI in using stock GarageBand drum samples, using like GarageBand amps, and it sounds huge. <laughs> so like- not even that you have to make really great sounding demos. I'm just saying that like, we are really fortunate to live in a time that the barrier to entry to record is, is, is next to nothing because almost everybody needs to have a smartphone in order to kind of operate in 2021. So just spend some time in GarageBand, build a loop, see if it inspires something and try to, try to make songs like that. That changed my songwriting completely. When I started writing into a computer, I started coming up with ideas that I never would have been able to come up with before because you have this instant feedback of like, oh, does this, does this actually sound cool or does it suck? It allows you to be very self-critical quickly in a, in a really good way. 
that is my biggest thing. I'll also say that sometimes a demo that was recorded in Logic or in GarageBand will kind of form the foundation of the final release. So, like, just figure out how to do it. Because sometimes if it just works, it works. Dude, yeah, like, that is that is 100% right. I I can name a lot of songs that I've worked on that that is the case. But, like, the, the first thing I think of is this band Glacier Veins, who is on Equal Vision. The the last record that we did together, or, like, the, the first record that we did together, they came with demos of every song. I think there was one song that, like, the structure wasn't perfectly written out. But other than that, they they had demos, full demos of every single song with every part already recorded, including harmonies, real drums. They were on tour while tracking it. So it's like some of, some of it was like, you know, done in a hotel room and it's like kind of crappy, but you get the idea. And more or less, that record is the demo, but really good. <laughs> you know, it's everything's re-recorded. Yeah. But like... If you if you're if you flip in between the demo and the final thing, you're like, oh, I see what the demo was doing, you know. And so, you as an artist know what you want to hear more than your producer ever could. And so, rather than trying to use your use your words to to describe, hey, I I want it to sound like, you know, a mix between Green Day and Ariana Grande. Instead of instead of saying that. It is way better to at least spend a day or two before you go into the studio to do your best and put down something that at least has a vibe that you like, whether or not it's technically right, who cares? Like, I always tell people when I get demos, guaranteed I've heard worse, okay? So like, you're not going to be the worst thing that I've heard, guaranteed. And yeah, there, there are files that I'll never let people hear. It, it just is rude. It just is plain mean. But I, I have some gnarly stuff that I've been sent, okay? So... It's just like, do your freaking best. Have fun with it. A lot of people get really easily stressed out while recording themselves because they're like, oh, I don't really like, uh, I don't know what they, uh, should I put an EQ before a compressor or whatever? Which, which in which case, yes, do the EQ before the compressor. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but it, like, it doesn't freaking matter. Do it quickly. I, when I started recording myself in high school, it's like I would pull up in Logic presets like track presets and it's like lead vocal track preset great awesome done not even going to touch it because it's like apparently there's something to that and there's nothing wrong with doing that so i would just say be a go-getter and and freaking do it as good of a job as you can because it is only going to inform the final recording more or it will reveal things that you hate that you're like okay i definitely don't want it to be like this and then at least you can show your producer like I hate how this guitar part sounds in relation to the vocal. I think it sounds so lame. And it's like, cool, now we know. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is it doesn't have to be perfect, but just get the idea down, figure out what you want it to sound like so that you can hit it head on with your producer. Your producer will tell you, this needs to be redone. We'll do this on my nice mic instead of through your webcam. Which, side note, there are records that the vocals have been recorded through webcams. I think there's like a Vampire Weekend record from... What is it about, like 2012 or something? That was all webcam vocal. That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I believe it. Yeah. But like, you know, at the end of the day, it, it even if for some reason that ends up being what you release, which like, I mean, I think you and I will both say there's some benefit to working with a producer, but like, even if it's what you release, it's about the creativity rather than, you know, just about the quality. That is a great point. And you can point, there, there are many large records that, in my opinion, like 
kind of objectively don't sound very good. However, they made a huge splash, right? So it's like like early post Malone stuff. To me, like oh, it's it sounds like really bit crushed in a really weird way, but it has a thing to it that is very cool, right? And and obviously post has a he has something freaking special. There there's a reason that he has like who who knows how many monthly listeners on Spotify? Millions, 16 million, probably 100 million. Who who even knows? He's massive. So, I don't know. The the vibe and the songwriting is way more important than like how technically right the the recording is. But why not do both? <laughs> <laughs> Totally, totally. So let's maybe talk about kind of what this, I, I don't know, for lack of a better word, this kind of new model of recording, demoing, how you can use that to your advantage. Like, what, what does that process kind of look like? You know, you, you start demoing it at home and then you bring it in. Let, let, let's kind of talk about this, this new phenomenon now that 90% of people have logic at home and can kind of demo out some stuff and write stuff. The process usually goes for me, generally speaking, I, I spend three days a song producing. So first day on something like that, where an artist has already started in Logic, is I'll have them, if they have a laptop, I'll have them bring in their laptop and I'll just plug the output of their interface or whatever. Technologically, it doesn't really freaking matter, but plug it into my speakers so I can just listen to their Logic session, solo stuff out, see what is kind of cool, what has a vibe, and we'll, we'll usually kind of work in their logic session for like a couple hours just to, just to kind of like get whatever vibe they had going, if it's cool and worth pursuing, get small technical decisions out of the way that will make things better when we transfer into Pro Tools. In the long run, if an artist thoughtfully spends time on making things in a demo, it is not uncommon that th those things end up in a final recording. Because why would you replace a logic glockenspiel over a part if it's doing the right part and it sounds like a glockenspiel? You know, like, it's probably going to be great. And I know for a fact the GarageBand glockenspiel has been on a lot of very huge records. So like, you know, don't don't fight it. So that's kind of like the beginning part of the process for me is is hunting through and seeing what is the, like, I suppose, how good can the artist do without me? But also, like, what does their brain sound like on a laptop? Which maybe it's, it's probably not perfect, but it, it at least is a start. And there's a reason that there's maybe no reverb on the vocal, you know, and you can pick up on that. I guess now I'm kind of moving more into like a producer's mindset, though. But let's say, like, you're, you have an artist come in, the artist is like, well, what should I bring in? An artist should bring in as good of a demo as they can possibly make, as, as good as whatever that means. For some people, that is, an iPhone, like, that is a voice memo, and that is totally okay. Which I've worked on albums where the demos are a voice memo from 2013, which, you know, six or seven years ago or whatever. Yep, been there. Which is fine, which is fine. So It's completely okay. It's a different process. It's a completely different process because... I would say if you're doing that, and this is something that I tell people, like, even when I'm hit up by somebody that I've never met before, you know, maybe I'll have them come out to the studio or we'll do a Zoom call or whatever, just to kind of do an intro. I'll always tell people, like, like it's up to you who you work with, right? If you meet, you can meet with 10 producers and it's not an issue if you don't like any of them, you know, because there's always more. You're trying to find somebody that can be like a musical thought translator slash 
therapist for you, right? And so like it is imperative that you click with this person on on like a fundamental music level because if you don't like it's not even necess- it's not going to be their fault that they're going to make something that you don't like because you just you you are talking different languages, right? So yeah, I think that's the most important thing is that you need to find somebody that you if you're going to work with somebody find somebody that you vibe with and and you enjoy the work that they've done in the past or uh, when you're talking about albums that you like, hopefully you guys have some similarities or that's the big one. And so the less you bring to a producer, the more you need to trust that they're going to to be able to bring your vision to life. The more you bring to a producer, the more that producer will most likely be like in edit mode where it's like, cool, this part's really cool, except these two chords clash. Did you notice that? No, you didn't notice that. Okay, so we need to fix that structurally right here is kind of stupid. So let's cut this, but then we're going to bring it back right here. Hopefully that makes sense. Like it's very, it's two very different things on a voice memo kind of thing. You're going to be spending the first day building, building a, a groove, getting something that has like a sonic identity. That's actually sick doing scratch vocals, coming up with, you, you know, the, like all of that kind of stuff, basically demo stuff. Right. So if you come with that done, then that means that you're going to be spending three days on stuff that is like real deal, very informed decision making, which I think is awesome. But I but I enjoy doing ground up stuff too. It just it just depends. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think that's cool because even if you have you're an artist and you have some real natural talent for arranging and demoing and you know everything sounds great and you can record yourself, maybe you have a nice home studio set up. Like I, I think there still is some sort of value and having a producer as like an editor there's there's a reason why stephen king and george r R. martin have editors of their books is to to say you know like hey you've got a really great creative thing going on here but it's also like a different mindset that you kind of have to shift into and there are some artists who are total freaks that can do it all like prince (laughs) you know and like, I, I, I hope I, I, this doesn't sound like, you know, an ad for you should hire me or Justin or, or whoever. But like, I think there is, I think there is, you know, some advantage to at least working with someone to help finish it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I am completely on the, on the train of music was meant to be collaborated on. It just, it just was because people like no two people are going to have the exact same idea about every single part. And there's something very cool about that. Where, you know, I know for records that I, like if an artist comes to me and they're like, cool, we kind of like this vibe. We're just going to trust you. We're going to go with it. And during the process, I'm throwing out all these ideas and then there's never pushback. I'm like, I'll, I'll usually tell people like, will you just disagree with something that I say, please? Because, <laughs> because like, I want the pushback. Like I love small musical disagreements in the studio. I love that crap. Like I will, I will seek out small disagreements because it's like, that is what is important. And maybe you're arguing about like going into the bridge, are we going to go to the five or we could, we could maybe go to the minor three to lead into the four because it, you know, and it's like, maybe, maybe there's, uh, there's two different sides that feel really passionate. I really like that crap. And that's how good songs are made. There's, there's also a reason that on, I mean, I don't know, people have big opinions about it, but it's like on a freaking Katy Perry song, there's going to be 12 writers. And it's like, that does seem crazy. 
And some of those people may have just been like in the room and they threw out one idea and you know, whatever, who knows, but it's all, it's, it's collaboration. And she does happen to be like one of the big artists, the biggest artists in the world. So, um, there's definitely something to collaboration. It's not like she's just on her on her little rig at home and uh, sending it out to the radio. <laughs> right, right. No, and, and I, I think some of that polarization in the studio, like, you know, about should we do this or that, having differing opinions is good because that means you are actually evoking some emotion out of something. And that's what music is about. No one cares about safe art. E- even if it's bubblegum pop, like there's, there is still, you know, a statement being made by bubblegum pop. So like you should lean into that. Oh, absolutely. And, and yeah, no, just to kind of like drive that nail in farther. Like if, if people have big opinions and there are small arguments starting to happen, that's because people are invested and, and that is a very good thing. If your producer is generally a very opinionated person, and for whatever reason, they're not being opinionated with you. It might be because they're not really vibing the song and they don't have any good ideas, you know? Which, like, happens to the best of us. I'm not gonna, going to, like, say that I'm just always on it and, like, I'm the most inspired human being ever. I don't, I don't think anybody can say that, honestly. Yeah, man, good disagreements are, are what make good songs. I, I really believe that. Mm-hmm. So maybe let's transition now into talking about what are some of the things that an artist can do before heading into the studio to make sure that they are prepared. What have been some of the things that that you've run into over the years? Don't smoke cigarettes ever. <laughs> that's a big one. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a big one. Also, don't stop smoking right before you go into the studio. If you're, if you're still smoking, just keep keep on rolling, and then afterward, after you're out of the studio, stop smoking. That's a big one. What about like just knowing your parts? Yeah, no, I I think that that's a big one. Yeah. I know I'm thinking about like a lot of things demo wise because demos demos are a great way of getting people to know their parts. I also I also really like it when people are not so dialed in on their parts that when we're trying to change things, they're like, oh, my muscle memory is screwing me up. So I would rather somebody come a little bit less prepared, but they kind of understand the idea of what they're supposed to do than be like one track mind. I can only hear it one way. I would say like practicing to a click for a drummer, that is something that like forever is going to be a good idea. Just like making sure that you have supplies that you need, like go to the store and bring some food so that like somebody in the band is not constantly going into the in, into town and, and grabbing something. Strings are huge. Bring enough sticks. Communication's a big one. So like for me, I'll always provide drum heads because generally speaking, people are using my drums. And so- like, but communicate with your producer. Like, do we want to have drum, new drum heads? Are you doing that or are we supposed to do it? And probably don't have an attitude if your producer says, yeah, can you bring drum heads? Because may, maybe the budget's lower or, or something. There's probably like some sort of reason for that. But it's like kind of get all of this logistical BS out of the way so that when you actually get into the studio, it's just a good time. And like, there's no stressing about, oh, crap, we need to do a Guitar Center run. Oh, is Guitar Center even open? Like, the the whole thing. Did Guitar Center go bankrupt during COVID? You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think I think it really is. Just, like, do all of the logistical planning before you get there so that you're maximizing your, your hourly <laughs> studio time or day rate or whatever 
time is money in the studio, so you need to you need to come with all your ducks in a row. So that there's no uh, there's no uh, you know twiddling your thumbs. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about maximizing your time in the studio. One of the things that you are brilliant at that I would love to learn from you on is how do you make the most of your time in the studio? Like, how do you do an entire song in just a couple of days? Like, what what does that like? How have you like streamlined that process? Yeah, like seven years of figuring out what I love and hate about like about the way of working, right? Back in the day when my rates were like really low and whatever, I would sometimes do a song in a day, which is like crazy, no fun, like execution style recording where it's like, I have the drum set up, the drummer sits down at 901 because like <laughs> sessions for me usually start at 9am and, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're tracking the last BGV at 501, you know, that's no fun. So it's really come from experience, but every, every song has a little bit of a different process, which I kind of just, um, based on the band and I's initial phone calls or like our planning meetings, where the demo's at and stuff, that is how our time frame is, is made. And so usually I would say most cases nowadays, the first day we need to pick a genre. So like for, for like a rock song, let's say like a, like a modern pop punk song. The first day we would be programming the drum parts to be completely perfect, working out fills, making something that is like actually feels very cool and the drums sound great, gives, something, gives us like a good quote unquote click to play to. And then we'd start on rhythm guitars and maybe even bass on the first day. And depending on the band, the next day we would be doing like vocals, lead guitars, keys, other things. Now, are these demos or the finals at this point? Uh, this is final stuff. Yeah, this is this is final stuff. Tracking two fake drums because if we're doing like really modern rock, it's the the drums are going to be perfectly gridded, and this this is providing that the drummer is actually pretty good. But then, like the last day, we would be doing drums. And then with the drums, sometimes groove things will change. And so we'll do little guitar punches, bass punches, background vocals, whatever. So I, I guess for, for me, it's really studio efficiency is all about me being like very confidently leading the ship. And I'm never, I'm generally never asking the band like, okay, so now we did drums. Like, what do we need to do next? Uh, like that question's basically never going to come out of my mouth unless we're on day three and we're doing ear candy. And it's like, it's like, what else, what else can we do? Let's do something freaking weird. Like let's pull out a kalimba and, and it's going to make almost no difference, but we'll know it's there. That's kind of cool. You know? So yeah, the biggest thing is, is somebody in the room needs to be leading the ship. I would hope that your producer, I'm talking to the to whoever's listening, I'm hope I hope that your producer can take charge and theoretically you're paying them a good rate. And so they should be the one that is is steering the ship. They know what order works for them. Trust the process if if you've heard stuff that they that they've done that you like. And yeah. I can go into more detail if you yeah. If you- <laughs> yeah, would love to know just like, you know, zeroing in on each of those parts of the process, like what about, you know, different takes? Are you doing lots of takes? Are you doing minimal takes? Are you saying, no, screw that and deleting that right here and there? Are you capturing everything and comping or what, what's kind of that look like for you? It depends on what instrument we're talking about. So I suppose we can start with drums. 
Depends on the drummer, but usually we're going section to section. So we're like, cool, let's just just do the intro and get that really good. And we'll do like six takes of that until it's feeling really solid. I will edit that. And then we're going to move on to the verse. And then we're going to get a really good verse. Cool. Awesome. Comp it, edit it, consolidate it with the first part or, you know, whatever. So I'm constantly comping and editing as we're going. And that's how I'm working on vocals too. Generally speaking, we're like always referencing auto-tune or just listening to auto-tune while they're recording. And because, yeah, and I'm, I'm doing like vocal line while we're going. I want for things to sound as finished as possible, as soon as possible. And so, yeah, we're doing, we're doing as many takes as it takes, <laughs> as it takes. With guitars, that is a process that changes per band. Usually we're doing all DIs for, uh, for rhythm guitars just straight in and then, and we're just like monitoring some plugin, STL Tone Hub or some, something from Neural or something. And if it needs to be reamped, after I edit the DI, we'll reamp it and, um, and that's fine. Sometimes for guitars, it takes literally, we're going to do measure to measure. I just did a pop punk record that, yeah, we did for the bass and the guitars. It's all DI stuff. And yeah, we punched literally measure to measure because it's all downstrokes. I don't know if there's a single upstroke on it on the entire record. I, I, I'm pretty sure because <laughs> we just wanted it to be like very heavy hitting, very like everything is just nailing, nailing your head at the same time, you know? So uh, that's kind of the process for that. But it almost sounds like the way you're approaching it is in order to do it fast, you either say, okay, this is right. Let's do a couple of tightening things and be done and move on. Or no, that's not right. Let's just, let's redo it. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's definitely a lot of decisions in the moment. I've learned to trust my gut a lot. And so if, if there's like some reason that something is catching me wrong, I do, I generally think like, okay, there's a reason for that. And at the very least, there's going to be a conversation. And if there's a good reason for, like usually it comes down to a band is bringing in something that they're like for whatever reason on a, on like, the six of, of the song, they're playing it major, but it's only sometimes. And it's like, okay, wait, so is this on purpose? Because it's not right. And maybe it is on purpose because sometimes major mm-hmm. sixes are very cool, but not all, <laughs> not always. So a lot of what I do is having tiny conversations about basically every measure of every, every instrument to make sure that everything is as good as it can possibly be. And, you know, a lot of times We'll, we'll go back and, and punch a guitar part that it's like, oh no, this is actually cooler. Or uh, we found out a different tuning for the guitar, so we need to redo all of the, the rhythms or, or whatever. And that's completely fine. But yeah, a lot of it is just like very focused, a lot of very focused work. But it's about confidence in making decisions in the moment rather than saying, well, like, well, we have the option for this or like, maybe we'll do this. I do not do that. <laughs> I hate that. I literally hate that. Like, and, and there's sometimes that you can't, you can't not do it. Like, for example, the record I'm mixing right now for this band, 09, they, the drummer doesn't live in town. And so when he's here, it's like, okay, we need to capitalize on the fact that you're actually here. So, and we only have a freaking day. And so we're going to get like what I think is a good thing, but we're going to get a bunch of different fills. We're going to get a bunch of different stuff. And usually we'll do like a Zoom call where we're going through everything because there's just little idiosyncrasies that he doesn't like that I don't personally mind. 
And it's like, okay, cool. Yeah, we can swap this fill. I don't care. You know, whatever. So in that case, I'm totally down. But generally speaking, yeah, I'm wanting in the moment to just make the decision and to be committing to things, to just like have a thick vibe that is um, cohesive, intentional. There's not a lot of like waffling. I don't want to be like a waffly pr- producer that that doesn't have confidence in in like a decision because that's going to bleed into the artist's confidence about what we're doing. And then, and then you have people in the back of the room with their arms crossed and, and then, and that sucks, you you know? So there's a lot that goes into it for sure. Yeah. What would you say to an artist that feels a little bit like that's going out in public with their pants down, (laughs) like making a decision in that moment? Cause I'm sure you've encountered something like that where it's like, well, you know, I don't know about this. Maybe we'll see how this feels or that feels. Usually how that's dealt with is like, usually most of those things happen on day one or two, generally, because that's when, like how I said, we're kind of developing the sonic identity of the song. So usually it'll be like, oh yeah, I'm still not sure that that synth is actually cool or whatever. And generally I'll say like, cool, do you have an idea right, like right now? If you don't, that's totally fine. I'll give you a rough tonight with the synth and without the synth. And you go home and you can put it into your Pro Tools session or whatever and work on it. And maybe you'll come up with something sick. That, that'd be awesome. And then the next morning, generally speaking, the very first thing in a session, we'll sit down before I even get comments from the artist. I'll sit probably for like 30 minutes or so because on my initial listen of the song, I'll have like a flood of ideas just because I've had the, the separation. I have not listened to the rough at all and... I'll do a bunch of little things, add little synth parts, you know, make a harmony really quick or or whatever, just so that I don't forget them. And then we'll come to the point where, where it's like, okay, cool. Did you come up with anything cool with that synth? No, but I still hate it. Cool. Delete that track and, and try to come up with something cooler. I don't always have the best idea. Maybe that, that person has, has a better idea. They just don't know what it is yet. And so, yeah, part of the job is, is facilitating that environment that, encourages people to speak out and encourages people to feel like it's okay to not like something. I always say like, whenever somebody's like, oh, I just like, I don't know. I just don't think that that's, that's that good. I'm always like, thank you. Good. Like, I want you to say that. And I think that it's important to like give people positive feedback when they're saying something that is like quote unquote negative, because to me that is like invaluable. The last thing I want is for an artist to leave and to feel like, a little bit deflated because they're like, yeah, this song didn't just, it didn't really turn out how I thought it was going to or whatever. That sucks. And if the producer was, was, I don't know, paying enough attention or whatever, they probably would have picked up on the fact that the artist wasn't very stoked and at some point in the process could have made a left turn that would have helped. So I'm just constantly looking at the, looking at people and saying, okay, cool. We like this. Like we're good. I think this is sick, but if you guys don't like this, let's, you know, I can delete this session. I'll delete it. You know, (laughs) I've literally like put people's sessions in the trash before just to make people's heart rates go up, but you can undo it, but people don't know it. It's, it's so funny. Well, I think it's also kind of an interesting thing. I've noticed that sometimes the projects that are just done the fastest evoke the most emotion just because it was like all instinct. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. I think that that's possible. I also think that the the best art the best art in the world is completely selfish art 
that is completely based on whatever the artist and or producer is feeling in that very moment, completely forsaking what the intended market would want. The worst music that I've been a part of is, is music where the artist the whole time is like, I just, do you think that people are going to like this? That's when you start making compromises that are going to be very safe and you're going to make something that is, is very vanilla that nobody's going to really care about. And like even us in the studio are just like, yeah, yeah, it's a good song. And it's, that's not what you want to be saying. But best case scenario, by, by the end of day three, you're like, we really made your coolest song yet. Like, yeah, I, I think people are going to like it. I mean, if you're stoked in the room, if you're listening to your board rough at the end of production before mix and you're like, this is freaking sick somebody else listening to it is going to think that too. Mm -hmm. It may not be the friends you grew up with, but someone's going to think it's sick. That is 100% true. Yeah. There are fans out there that have never heard your music. That's a, that's a quote from a couple episodes ago. Uh, Daniel Radin from Future Teen said that I, I'm going to just literally say from now on, you have fans out there that have never heard your music. Uh, that's a really good quote. Yeah, that's true. What other tips would you have just kind of generally for artists who are maybe starting to think ahead as COVID's maybe winding down, starting to, you know, get back to more of a normal, right, go into the studio routine. I mean, my, my biggest thing, I guess my, my biggest thing is just be intentional and plan out some sort of release schedule that makes sense for you. A lot of people ask like, oh, right now, do, like records are not cool at all, right? Or like, oh, so I can only release a single every quarter or whatever. And it, there's literally no rules. You can do whatever the frick you want. There's been a lot of bands that have dropped, Bring Me the Horizon has dropped two albums since quarantine or, or whatever, since COVID. And so it's like, so that, that is one model. And then there's, there's, a, there's another model, which I'm not saying indie artists should do that. I'm, I'm not necessarily saying that. Uh, it's a lot of money, but figure out a plan that financially works for you Ask the opinion of, of the people around you. Ask your producer's opinion about like, you know, what, what have artists been doing that you've been working with and what's been working? So that's really important to know. I would say content is just ridiculously important, however you're delivering it. So like if I were to be starting a project, a band that I was wanting to get off of the ground, I'd probably want to be doing a single every month or two plus some sort of like live performance version of the song that's a little bit more stripped down or something with a video that's very sick that you're offsetting. So, and it doesn't even have to sound as good. So spend your money and make a really good song with a real producer, real mixer, whatever, make it as good as you can possibly make it and release it. And then a few weeks later, you'll be able to release something that maybe you, you self-recorded or you have another homie that is, is just starting out recording, so they're a lot less money, which is great. And they can do a video for you. And so every other month you're releasing something. And this is a pro tip. Music with video can sound a lot worse and actually still technically sound better to people because your eyes do a lot of the work. It's like, oh yeah, look look how good this shot looks. And, and it adds in a lot of context. So be encouraged by that, you know, set up, set up a mic and do it, do like a one mic acoustic thing. I don't know, just something for people to watch, release it on Instagram or, or whatever. I just, I think that the, the market is flooded, 
but also people have there's there's infinite room in people's phones, minds, whatever for another artist that they're going to love. So you can't you can't have this limiting mindset of like oh, well, this, this other band in town is killing it or this other producers in town is killing it or whatever. It's like, no, you just start killing it. I don't, I don't know. Start, start putting stuff out regularly. Do the absolute, like, absolute best that you can possibly do. People are going to respond to it if it's consistent, if it's actually legitimately cool. So I don't know. That's what I think. Just be uh, relentless in your content making and, and make it as good as you possibly can and as regular as you can. Don't expect your first single to be the one that is going to to get playlisted on freaking the hugest Spotify playlist and then you're on tour with Usher. <laughs> Usher was the stupidest <laughs> thing I could have thought of right there. I was really trying to to come up with something even worse, but... Well, it, it, it's not about the magic bullet. It's about having a bunch of bullets and hoping something hits. <laughs> the other thing also is is don't underestimate getting some sort of placement or sync deal somewhere. There's like a billion companies, like every artist that I work with works with some different company that I've never heard of, right? But, you know, there's the big players, there's Marmoset and there's Musicbed and, you know, there, there's, so there's kind of, there's the big boys, but there's littler people that maybe the, the percentage is different or something, but definitely pursue getting sync placements. As, a, as an artist, that is really, that is how you can really survive. It can be very, very lucrative to do that. So don't, don't underestimate spending time on that. Totally, totally. Well, Justin, thanks so much for coming on the show today and uh, talking with us about everything. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. I love the show. I am honored to be asked. So that's it for my conversation today with Justin Abel. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, real quick, would you do me a favor and just give us five stars on the show? Helps us get more visibility on this podcast, on the podcast charts. Secondly, if you're working on new music, want to know how to promote it, would love for you to sign up for a free workshop, Rock the Release. It's going to teach you everything you need to know in order to plan and promote, start landing blogs, playlists, start racking the streams, just lay out the proven formula for success that the top independent artists are using. And so we'd love for you to sign up for that. Just go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop. But for now, that's it. And we'll go ahead and see you next time.